you deceived. All of us are deceived somewhere. Somewhere in our hearts, somewhere in our brains. There's areas where we're deceived. Uh, Even if we have the right information, it's difficult for us to be completely clear on all the truth. And so that's why we all grow. A great example of this is um, uh, back in, I don't know when, but Marlboro, when they started to market their cigarettes, uh, had the idea that they would market them using a classy woman. So, you know, the woman with the long cigarette holder, and and that was their image. Uh, They they took something like 1% of the market with that image. Then they found out through some research that <clears throat> smoking was macho to men. That men uh, thought that smoking cigarettes made them look uh, tough and macho and stuff. And so they <clears throat> went with the uh, image of the cowboy. So what we know is the Marlboro Man. And, uh, you know, the, the commercials were the rugged, leather-faced cowboy out there you know, driving cattle, puffing on his cigarette. <clears throat> that was the Marlboro Man. It worked magnificently. They took something like 50% of the market share. Made millions and millions of dollars off of that image. But, of course, the Marlboro Man did die of smoking, disease, disease associated with smoking. I don't know it was lung cancer or what. And, uh, you know, Marlboro Country is turned out to be more of a graveyard than a ranch so to speak, yuck, yuck. So uh, people bought cigarettes and thought it was cool, right? It's a deception. The whole uh, ad world, the whole marketing world, and in our day and age, the whole social media world and the media, the media itself, the news media, is all based upon deception. And so we've got to weave through all of these lies. And that's what God wants for us. But God isn't going to download into our brains the truth. He's going to make us learn it for ourselves. And there's great benefit in that. So let's start in Matthew chapter 3, where John is going to try and get the Pharisees and Sadducees to repent of their deception. And uh, let's open up in prayer uh, and seek in God's word the uh, truth that we need so that we uh, more and more can be set free from a life that is deception into a life that is of knowledge. And that takes humility. So with humility in mind, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that in this gospel we have a timeless truth that is spoken to us through, uh, we're not even really to the ministry of your son, our Lord, but even in John, the forerunner, we learn so much. Today we look, Father, at repentance that each of us need. more. Each of us as believers need it continually. As we grow in grace and knowledge, we have to change our minds about things that we uh, once knew or thought we knew, and it turned out to be false. We seek your guidance through your spirit that we would know things that are right and have all truth in all areas. We pray for the believers, unbelievers, sorry, around the world, who those who may be in our lives who we can witness to, that they may have the greatest repentance of all, which is to change their attitudes. 
towards the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe upon him as, as their Savior. Uh, may we be that light to the world, Father, as you use us to your glory. And may your word speak to us that glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So deception is definitely so common in this world. The whole news media runs on it. Social media runs on it. And it's all a, a most pretty much a, a bunch of lies. And so we have to sift through the lies. Thankfully for us, we have God's Word. So God's Word, sure enough, applies to every area of life. And um, for the stuff that we wish that were in God's Word that isn't there, uh, it doesn't need to be there. Every The Word of God is one of the terms that's used in theology is that the Word of God is sufficient. Uh, there's there's nothing more that we need. Uh, don't need the Book of Mormon. Don't need the extra that comes from Jehovah's Witnesses and their, or whatever they call it, Watchtower or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> we don't need extra. Uh, what we need is there. The theme today is repentance. Uh, John's of this paragraph. So we have a paragraph here in chapter uh, verse seven through ten. If we look, let's read it. But when when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, "Now we don't know if they're coming to be baptized or just coming to see it, but it seems like they're just coming to see it." Uh, he said to them, "You brood of vipers." Who want, now, the word brood is actually the word, the Greek word is generation. Uh, it, I'll show it to you in a second. It's uh, ganao, which means the generation is. Uh, brood is okay because, of course, we're talking about snakes, but he's certainly speaking of this generation in Israel to whom the Lord is coming. So he says, you generation of vipers, which is snakes, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? That's sarcasm right there, because they were warned by the prophets, but they haven't read, really read the prophets. They read the prophets, but they haven't seen themselves in the prophets. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping. Now, the word keeping is a fine translation, but it's the Greek word axios, which means worthy. So I would prefer bear fruit worthy of repentance. So if you, in other words, if you truly repented, then there would be manifestation, the manifestation of a changed heart. As we'll see tomorrow, we don't have time today to look at all the passages on fruit in Matthew. There's a bunch. We'll look at them tomorrow. But uh, part of the fruit is a changed way of speaking, a changed way of talking, and that comes from a changed heart. Of course, a changed way of living is the ultimate repentance, uh, and that comes from a changed heart. So bear fruit in keeping or worthy of repentance do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able or has the power to raise up children to Abraham. Now, being a Jew isn't going to save your bacon. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the theme of this paragraph is the fact that John is warning the Pharisees and Sadducees that they must bear good fruit worthy of repentance or that generation will be removed and really destroyed. But, you know, every generation dies. So, you know, what's the big, big deal? Oftentimes groups of people die very tragically. 
But the, the tragedy here is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. And that they have, the king is in their midst. And they're going to be destroyed without seeing the kingdom or experiencing the kingdom of heaven. And that's the warning. The warning from John is that they must repent. In other words, change their attitudes, which we're going to see today what is their attitude, and change that to what an attitude would be, a mind, a heart would be when it is turned towards God. Uh, We're going to apply this to ourselves as well, because everything that the Pharisees do, all of us are tempted to do. And we can very subtly do it, because the, the true deceiver in this world is Satan, and Satan is a master at deceiving us. What he wants to do, he wants to devour you. In 1 Peter 5, uh, 8, 1 Peter 5, 8, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the way he devours you is to get you disobedient, to get your eyes off of God. He wants to devour your spiritual life. And if he can get you disobedient to God in any area of life, he doesn't care what the area is. But if he can deceive you into being disobedient, the disobedient areas of your life can, will manifest themselves and grow and overtake your life. And that's exactly what he wants. Pharisees and Sadducees are no different than anybody else. They're deceived people. right? They're born sinners. Now they've been warned. They've been warned and warned. I love how John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he, he's tongue-in-cheek there and saying, look, you all know and have read the prophets. You've been warned through the prophets. You're being warned by John. When Jesus starts his ministry, they're going to be warned by him. And so they have tons of warning. They've had discipline in their lives. We don't have to read about it. We know that they have because everybody who has turned their back on God experiences great discipline in their lives. And uh, still they're not waking up to the fact of what they need to do. Pharisees and Sadducees here together are called a brood. This uh, Greek word is genomata. comes from genome, I believe the word is. And uh, it is a generation. And that generation will face severe discipline. The, the greatest part of this discipline is they're not going to receive the kingdom of heaven. We know in, his, in history, in 70 A.D., that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. The Romans sacked the city, burned down the temple. And, uh, <clears throat> and so that, that's what's at stake here. And it's a grave thing. And it turns out to be a grave thing for all of us. We have to be very as the Word of God teaches us to be sober and alert, all of us have to repent of many things over and over again. Uh, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, scribes, chief priests on the pages of the Gospel give us great insight into the majority of ruling elites in our world. They are the ruling elites in Israel during the generation of Jesus' ministry. And they have, therefore, they have power the Romans have pretty much let them run things as long as they don't cause trouble, which is what they were afraid of um, when, when the whole thing went down with, with Christ. It's the thing that Pilate was afraid of, too, and he just wanted to squash out this Jesus of Nazareth guy. So, uh, but it's the same thing that 
has happened throughout history and throughout the world is that once you have power, once people have power, wealth, and influence, they'll do anything to keep it. And the things that they do to keep it are to suppress all others. This is happening in our world now. It's always happened. Uh, we shake our fists at it. We read about it in the news. We see it in this next coming year, coming up in an election year. Uh, things are going to get heated up, and we're going to see it even more prevalent in, in the media. And so God says to us, what? That I'm going to stop them? I'm going to get them? Uh, the wicked prosper. You know, is God going to get them? Well, he is. He says that he's going to judge them. As it says here, the axe is already at the root of the trees. And that means the tree is going to be destroyed. And therefore, God is definitely going to judge. But we don't have to see it. And that's where God truly tests us. We have to, by faith in God's word, give them over to him. And in fact, have pity towards them. Not anger and bitterness, but pity. We should long for them to know the Lord and to know his word and to know his way. Uh, those who have power and don't know the Lord. Those who have wealth and don't know the Lord. Those who have influence from yesterday's message and don't know the Lord should be pitied by us. Not We shouldn't be angry at them. They need the Lord and... They don't have him, so many of them. The serpent is the depiction of evil right from the beginning of the Bible. In, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, Satan takes the form of a serpent. And as I quoted in 1 Peter 5, he still prowls about. Uh, the diff it's a different image. It's a roaring lion, as Peter describes him. But it, as a serpent, right at the beginning, the serpent does... Here, uh, and in this case, this word for viper means a poisonous snake. It doesn't refer to any particular type, if you're wondering. It just is a viper. And as a viper, what do vipers do? They kill and they devour. Right? They eat you whole. <laughs> they kill you and devour. And Satan seeks to destroy and devour. And his main weapon is deception. The Pharisees and Sadducees are deceived. They have the word of God, as John uh, sarcastically said to them. You know, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They know the prophets. They know Isaiah. They've read it. They've read it and read it and read it. They know Jeremiah. They know the Twelve, the book of the Twelve, or the books of the Twelve, if you prefer. Uh, and... Uh, the, those 12 minor prophets are full of it. They're full of the wrath that is to come. Especially in Joel. Joel is so full of the day of the Lord. It's a short book, but it's full of the discipline that's coming upon Israel in the quote-unquote day of the Lord. They know of it. Now, the serpent we find in uh, Genesis. We also find the serpent in Numbers. Numbers chapter 21 where the discipline on Israel after they grumbled and complained against the Lord was that they were bitten by fiery serpents. But what was the solution? The solution was that Moses, on the end of a pole, held up a brazen or bronze serpent, and anyone who looked at it would be healed. Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 14, said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man, therefore, becomes the fulfillment of that type. And so the solution to the bite of the serpent, which we can see here, 
is the deception that leaks into the soul of every human being. That's why we all need to re- we all had to repent to believe in Christ, and then afterwards we still have a mind full of things that are false. And all of it takes the, all of it has to be changed to the truth. And Christ is the only way to do that. In him we are made new, but in him we have uh, the source of wisdom. In him we have the source of power. He gives us his spirit. We have the source of wisdom in which the spirit, as he promised us, would reveal him. And if we saw him, we would see the Father. And then we would see God. And as seeing that, all that, we would look to God and his way in everything that we do. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is to change your mind from things that are not God to God. And this is in everything. Everything. In life, in marriage, in church, in Bible class, in everything. That your heart is changed. And it's continually so as we learn more and more and we grow more and more. It also is, and I probably should have reversed these, but it doesn't matter. I mean, converted by faith is the the change that occurs in the unbeliever. But it still continues to change in us. And we're constantly tempted in the areas of deception. And note what John says to them. If you don't bear the fruit of repentance, we can all say it. We can all say we're changing. We can all say we're growing. But are we? Are we growing? Are we changing? You can go through decades of your Christian life and not change at all because you think you're fine. But you're deceived. You're you're deceived in a comfortability. Uh, Sadly, and, and I've been harping on this a bit lately, in American Western Christianity, people are, there's a lot of country club Christianity going on in America because we're all pretty well off. We're all pretty comfortable. We can be deceived into thinking like the Jews thought, hey, if we're born of Abraham, we're fine. And for Christians who will say, well, look, I have enough money in the bank. My kids are doing okay. My home is okay. My marriage, eh, it's okay. My car's running. I'm not sick. (laughs) You know, and and I think, well, therefore, my spiritual life is okay. Is it? And by the way, it's since we're always growing, it's never completely okay, is it? So all believers have many repentances to make regard to their conception in all areas of life, or perception, I should say. All are born slaves of sin, and God wants us free. And it turns out that we have to decide to be free. He sets us free. But to be wise, meaning to not be deceived, to be deceived is to be a slave. To be a slave. If I'm deceived by sin, I'm a slave to my sin nature. If I'm deceived by a person, if I'm deceived by the world. You know, I think of marriage so often and how deceived the world is about romanticism, marriage, and sexuality. How deceived is the world? That People aren't getting married anymore. They're not having kids anymore. Wives, I mean, tell any woman that she has to submit to her husband in all things. Good Lord, get ready. But it's a biblical truth. 
It's a biblical truth that children should obey their parents, that parents should discipline their children. It's a biblical truth that a family should be run away that God has determined it to be. But it's, it's a very old, old thing now in our world. And what is that? It's deception. And we all reap the benefit of that deception or the curse, I should say, of that deception. All are born slaves. God wants us free. The Pharisees and Sadducees are no different than anybody else, but they're deceived. And as such, as leaders in Israel who know the word of God, they're not like pagans who don't know anything about the word of God. These are leaders in Israel who know the word of God, and yet they don't perceive the word of God. They think that because they're in Abraham, that they're good with God, that they're in God's good graces. And on top of that, they're pretty sure that everybody else is not. And this is the thinking of an elite group, as we'll see. And i got to hurry up to get there. The fruit must be worthy of repentance. That's the Greek word axios. Uh, the translation's fine. Actually, most of the good translations have this in verse 8, therefore bear fruit in keeping. Uh, the Greek word is axios, which truly means worthy or to be weight. It's a word that literally means weight, like a weight on a scale. Uh, and so the fruit must be worthy of repentance. And that must, and, and again, an application to us in modern times. This is a repentance that is in all realms, all realms of God. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that, um, you know, that there don't be deceived into not changing the things that need to be changed in your life. Uh, we have to seek this. God doesn't wave his magic wand and say, all right, I'll change it. I, I mean, recently I've asked God for certain changes and he said to me, and, you know, it's, it's like Paul saying, take the thorn out of my flesh. I've asked God for certain changes and he basically said to me, and I, I know he said to me, you can have those changes, but you, you've got to do the work that makes them a reality. In other words, I would, if God could just boink my magic wand and make it all the way I want it. <laughs> Think how uh, self-centered that idea is. God, just make everything in my life the way I want it to be. God says, I want to make everything in your life the way I want it to be. Do you get it? Do you understand how wonderful and how much freedom there is in that? So, this further reveals that water baptism is definitely a ritual. Why doesn't John just say, all right, all, I'm glad you're here. Uh, he says, look back at the verse again. He saw many. Notice, see that word, many. It's not just some but many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come in for baptism. Why didn't he say, hey, come on down the bank and get in the water and you'll be good? But see, he's looking for repentance and not just words. He's looking for repentance that bears fruit, meaning a true change of mind. So it shows us that water baptism is truly a ritual and it just represents something that should happen in the heart of a person. God wants us to be free from slavery to deception, to lies, to false ideas. God wants us free from the deception of sin, of evil, of worry. Do you worry? Are you afraid? Are you jealous? Are you bitter? God wants us free from this. There's only one way to be free. 
And it's to turn our hearts towards Him. And whatever that thing is making you afraid, whatever thing is making you jealous or bitter, there is a truth that removes it. God wants to fill your life with His truth, whatever it may be. He does not want us dependent on people's opinions. I mean, do people like me? Our soul's prosperity seeking dependence on how much money we have. Especially if things get hard here. There's a lot of people in America that have far less money than they used to. And the money that they do have isn't worth as much as it used to be. And so people get afraid. God wants you to look to Him. And He says, what? Don't worry about tomorrow. I'll provide everything that you need. It may look dire, in fact. It may look like tomorrow is a big doom for you. But God says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough trouble. Focus today. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to drink. Don't worry about that. Seek first my kingdom and all things will be added to you. Do we do that? Do we want our enemies squashed in public? Embarrassed in public? Wouldn't it be great? See, all those people that we dislike or who we think are evil to actually get what they're, what's coming to them, God says they will be judged, but that's up to him when and where and how. Do we seek happiness in the fact that there would, should be no problems or issues or weaknesses in us? Isn't it a marvelous that God, it's not so marvelous, is it, that God leaves them there? The weaknesses that you have, they're left there. He could fix them in a moment, you know. He does not. Because he wants you to turn to him. Even silence from God, have you been through that? Where it's almost like God has just completely forgotten about you? He's testing our faith. Do we still believe what he says in his word, even if we haven't really heard from him, or it feels like we haven't? So they say... We're really, uh, John says to them, don't think that if you say to yourselves you have Abraham as your father, that you're good. Because ancestry doesn't need repentance. Right? How you're born, who you're born to, you can't, re- you can't repent of that. You can't change what you're born into. That body you're in, those parents you have, you can't change that. But a heart filled with false ideas... That needs to be changed. Were you born with a good pedigree? Were you born in a good home? Were you born with loving parents who were involved in your life? Were you born of a questionable stock? Were you born with alcoholic parents? A broken home, abused? Maybe you're an orphan. Maybe you experienced a life growing up where you were unloved and unnoticed in your home. Maybe you're born with a nervous disposition. Some people have that. They just can't settle down. Maybe you're an introvert instead of an extrovert. And so you were bullied. God erases all of this through the virgin birth. You say, how does God erase that in the virgin birth? I wasn't born of a virgin, but your Lord was. And therefore, being born of a virgin, our Lord created a new humanity. He came into the world not in the usual way, That's to say the least. And uh, he's a new Adam. 
If we're in him, we're born again. And so we become, we get new parents and a new home and a new family and a really a new DNA, so to speak. Now, it won't show up on a, on a test. <clears throat> but Christ said to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we all need to repent of many things. And part of which is, uh, I need to forgive all those who treated me terribly. I need to forgive them. Uh, How hard is that for people, for Christians? They say, I can't, I won't. You are out of line. I know it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying that you have to face, you face God. It's why the repentance is to turn to Him and say, from you, you have forgiven me of all things. I must forgive them. I must love them. And then you'll be free. You'll be free from the burdens that deception and lies bring. So as we finish up here, we want to look at the false ideas that are uh, of the, the Jews in this case. Really, they're bad fruit. So when John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, we also find in the Gospels, and Jesus talks of it a lot, that there's trees that bear good fruit and trees that bear bad fruit. And we see in the Gospels throughout that the Jews have, well, especially these leaders, um, the Jewish leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and chief priests, have a terribly bad fruit. Uh, this is the man, in John 9.34, this is the man born blind. And the man born blind, who gets his eyesight from Christ... Uh, by the miracle of Christ, actually is able to discern who Christ is, whereas the Pharisees are unable. And he tells them this. The man born blind reveals to them his insights into who Christ is. And they say to him this, you are born entirely in sins. Are you teaching us? And then they put him out, which means they excommunicated him from the synagogue. Really, in this case, they're in Jerusalem, so is the temple. You were born entirely in sins. What is their implication? That they were not born in sin. Their idea, which was false, even Jesus' disciples had it. They asked Jesus when they came across this man who was born blind. They asked Jesus, what did this man's parents do that caused him to be born blind? They all had this conception that if you were born with some kind of birth defect, then it was your parents' sin that caused it. It's not true. It's a deception. And yet they believe that they were born without sin. Why? Because they were born in Israel and uh, achieved the status of that what they had as, as Pharisees. The modern application to us would be, none of us would say, hey, I'm a Jew. You don't even really hear that anymore. So we say, how does this apply to us? You don't really run into people who say, well, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a Jew, I'm, I'm good with God. But a modern application would be the conclusion that any, all of us are fine spiritually because our needs are met, because our life is comfortable. If we're not sick, if we're winning and prosperous, false ideas in our uh, postmodern world is centered around materialism, comfortability, and entertainment 
If I, have, a, if I'm in, have enough of what I think I should have, then I must be fine spiritually. And we can go to sleep spiritually, which is why Paul writes in Ephesians 5, awaken sleeper. <clears throat> so the actual fruit, the bad fruit of the Pharisees, is first standing aloof from common people. Go to Matthew 9. In Matthew 9, 9, Jesus went on from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were uh, dining with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this. They said to the disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Right, so uh, these are the common people. This is a manifestation of bad fruit that we're actually uh, seeing others as less than us. Jesus heard this and he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire, and, and these guys actually do all the sacrifices all the time. They are ritualistically pure, uh, but they have no time for the common man. And those are the people that Jesus went to. So, uh, standing aloof from the common people, do we, now we in our modern age, do we think that we're free from this attitude? Do we think that we're free from this attitude because we're spiritually enlightened? Do you think that you are better than others? Is there a group of people or type that you consider yourself better than? Pharisees, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. That parable, it's in Luke, where the, the thing it's in Luke 18, where the Pharisee says, thank you, God, for not making me like that man over there. And it's a depiction of this uh, utter elitism. And uh, you don't have to have a position of power. You don't have to have a lot of money to have it. You just have to look at other people as less than yourself. Are we free from this attitude because we're spiritually enlightened? We are not. And so God is going to bring people into our lives that demand, or I should say, Need forgiveness, need compassion, need giving. <clears throat> so John warns the Pharisees and Sadducees that they have to bear fruit worthy of repentance. Yeah, and that is the point of our paragraph in Matthew 7. All of us are sinners who are constantly improving and growing, and we have to be like Christ. We have to reach out to all others and serve them as he would have us do. We have to be like our Lord. Next, they elevate ritual. Did I want to go? Oh, I wanted to go to another one. But for the sake of time, we'll skip it. There, there's another, and uh, let me go back to it here in a second, just so you have it. 
In 23.2 is where uh, Jesus talks about how the uh, Pharisees longed and loved to be in seated in Moses' seat. That's what he says there. And, you know, meaning that they, they love to be at the head of the table. If you remember, Jesus said, take your seat at the lowest part of the table. And then when someone comes in, they may ask you to move up. But if you take a seat higher in the table, someone might come in and say, hey, you're in the wrong seat and move you down. And you're embarrassed. Christ told us, look, don't seek uh, to be noticed by men. We'll see this in the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the things he warned us to beware of is doing our righteousness before men so to be seen by them. All right, next one. Elevating ritual over, well, truly reality. Uh, The Pharisee, in uh, 12.2 and 15.1, this is where they uh, take issue with the disciples eating wheat on the Sabbath. They're picking the grain on the Sabbath and eating them. And then in 15.1, it's about washing their hands. And I, these are pretty plain. I knew for the sake of time that we would, uh, I'm just not, we're not going to turn to these, but they, they explain themselves. And, and it actually reveals to us something that all of us need to be careful of. Again, are we free from this as well? Are we free from being religious? Or how about this? Are, you, is, are Christians free from the fact that they think they're better than other Christians because of the church that they go to or the pastor that they have. Do, they, do you shun a Catholic or a Baptist, even though they're, if you understand that they're believers? If you know that someone's a believer and they're Catholic, they're Baptist or some other denomination, are they shunned? There's no denominations in heaven. There's no pastors in heaven either. There's no need for them. Repentance is a change or turn that all of us need in all areas since none of us are born good. The Pharisees and Sadducees are slaves to lies that they cling to even though they've been warned in many ways and disciplined by God many times. We all must be leery because we are called, we'll see this tomorrow, we're all called to bear fruit. God demands fruit of every single human being. All right, next one is their lack of faith. I'm sticking in Matthew here. I just went through all the places that the Pharisees were in Matthew, and uh, it was really quite enlightening. Go to uh, 1238. So... Now, this happens So actually go to verse 23. It says, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, why is that? He healed a demon-possessed man who could not speak. And for some reason, there's theories on this, but... Anyway, after seeing this particular miracle, the people were like even more leaning towards the fact that Jesus could be the Messiah. That's what it means, son of David. And 
So what's the response of the Pharisees? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, meaning Satan. In other words, the only reason he can do such miracles is because he's working for Satan. So, he tells them this sin cannot be forgiven. And that, that it's really there at that point that the offer of the kingdom of heaven to that generation is taken off the table. But then in verse 38, And some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This is just amazing. And it shows the stupidity of people. And, and we can be dumb too, you know, this idea that just because we have some doctrine in our minds that we can't be in need of, um, of a great amount of wisdom that we don't have. They're completely deceived. Now, they, he just did a sign and has done many signs, but he has just done a sign by which the people are starting to become convinced he's the Messiah. So they ask him for another sign. But he said to them, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And there he speaks of his death and resurrection. In three days and three nights he would be in the grave. And notice, the ones who want a sign are the evil and adulterous. Now, ask yourself, if you're seeking for a sign, you know, in, some, in something in your life where you have a need or maybe there's, you've gone through a time in your life where God has been kind of silent and... You know, you're starting to doubt some things, and it would be awesome. Remember, it was Gideon who put out the fleece that become, has become a phrase. You put out the fleece. And he said, Gideon was, put it out twice. He said, put it out, and I want it dry. Then he said, I'll put it out, and I want it wet. And God allowed him to do that. But it's really a failure on Gideon's part. He didn't believe the word of God. And God is going to test us in this realm. But we've got to believe what he says. In his word. If not, we're evil and adulterous. If we're craving a sign. And then, uh, verse 41, this is great. He says to them, and this, we're right back to John's passage in Matthew 3. In 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh repented in the book of Jonah. And so again, we see the word repent. <clears throat> Sometimes we think that God doesn't have a great plan for us. Like when, uh, when every year Chris and I have to sign up for health care. Right? It's a law here in Oregon. I think it's probably in every state now, I would imagine, that you have to have health care. And so we go through the plans on the portal, whatever it is. And whew, you know, as all of us know, uh, the price of health care, uh, it was promised that it would be cheaper, right? None of us believe that. That's another deception. And uh, yeah, and it's super expensive. So what do we get? We're limited financially, so we get the cheapo plan. And the cheapo plan has this huge deductible. And, you know, if something goes real wrong, you're on the hook for thousands of dollars. So hopefully nothing goes wrong. But um, 
that's kind of what I think some people think the plan of God is for their life. That God gave you the cheapo plan. He didn't give you the gold plus or the platinum plan. That God gave you the bronze. I think that's how like the HMOs go. You got up like a bronze HMO with a super high deductible. And that's because your life is what? Well, maybe it's boring. Maybe what you have is just something very simple. But wow, what God can do with the simple things. And yet, for each of us, it's a test. It's a test in which we have to change our hearts. Because none of us are born into the Christian life as mature, are we? And so, like John said to them, that they have to bear the fruit of repentance. What God wants for us is free hearts. And when our hearts are free... We start talking different. We start acting different. We start seeing the world completely different. We see it through the eyes of our Lord. And that's what God wants for us. We actually learn this right from the Pharisees. Now, next, the thing that they do is, the Pharisees, is that they seek to destroy their rivals. Now, especially the kingdom of heaven. They realize quickly that this kingdom that Jesus is offering has no place for them. They realize that really quickly. It has no place for them. The Pharisee is not in a job in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, for those, and there were Pharisees who believed in him, what happens? If you're an elitist like a Pharisee and then you believe in Christ, what happens to you? Well, we know, right? The greatest Pharisee of Pharisees was Saul of Tarsus. And when he believed in Christ, he went from way up there to way down there. He said he lost everything. And Philippians 3 writes about it. He lost everything. But he said, I count it all rubbish. I count it all as garbage. Everything that I lost, I'm glad I lost it because I'm gaining Christ now. The riches of Christ, the wealth of Christ. Far greater than having the highest position in the world. Do we see that? Do each of us see that? How wealthy we are in him. We tend to look around and say, well, I don't have a lot of wealthy stuff. I don't have you know, people wanting to be like me. Or I'm not sought after. Or maybe people even hate me. But that's exactly what he told us to be. And he actually he said what would happen if we followed him, that they'd hate us. And he actually also said that blessed are we when we're poor. And it doesn't mean give everything away. It means that even if you are wealthy in this world, what you have is nothing. Those, that wealth, that materialism is nothing compared to the knowledge of Christ. Nothing. And anyone who's a believer and has come to mature somewhat realizes that. And they know they're poor. Each of us are. Fully. Without him. Right? Yesterday's message was about the fact that his power and his wisdom, uh, sorry, his power, his wealth, and his influence are given to me, but they're never mine. I don't take God's power and say, thanks, I'm going to go use it for myself. It's not yours. It never was. It never will be. It's the Lord's. It's his. He gives it to you. But as soon as you t- cut yourself off from him, that, that you've distanced yourself from the power. And you have zero. All you have is your human power, which all it does is get you in trouble and feed pride. 
What a marvelous plan God has devised. So, seeking to destroy your rivals, how about you? How are you doing? How are you doing with your enemies, if you have them? How are you doing with those people that seem to be an enemy? Maybe you don't even know them. Maybe they're the ones that you read about on the news. Would you love to see them made the fool? Would you love to see them destroyed or saved? Christ told us that we have to love our enemies. And loving our enemies is a constant work, isn't it? And there's a lot of repenting there, meaning I'm constantly turning towards the Lord to gain more understanding in what true love really is. God brings more and more people into our lives who require forgiveness, help, compassion, kindness, faithfulness, the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, and they require this. If we're going to help them, do we want to help them? You see, what the Pharisees do is say, ah, tut, tut, Pharisees, what a bunch of jerks. But yet we're tempted in the same way, even as enlightened believers are enlightened spiritually. Not, I gotta hurry up, because just two more, I think. The blanket solution of destruction. You're in Matthew 12, look at verse 9. I'd say blanket because for many, the solution is just to blow it up, right? I don't know how to deal with this, so I just want to ignore it. And, that, and that's your way of uh, destroying it. You know, I don't want to deal with that. You know, uh, problems with people are complex, and it takes thinking. And God wants us to use our minds and our reason in together with the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word to actually think things through. And to think things through and come up with a solution often takes a prayer life as well. And um, as we grow in our prayer life, we're using our prayer life to seek the will of God in a certain situation. and Or... And this we find much easier. Rather than doing all of that work to ponder, meditate, you know, chew on the Word of God, rely on the Holy Spirit, go to God in prayer, and how we can deal with this situation, whatever it may be, and seek God's will and His solution in it, ignore it. Just ignore it. In other words, blow it up. And that's what they do. When they seek to, what are they going to do with the Lord? They're going to kill him. So, uh, let's see. I think for, we're in verse 14, but the, the set it up. Let's start in verse 9. Departing from there, he went into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you as a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? In Mark's gospel, he adds, is it lawful to do good to save a life or to kill on the Sabbath? And he says kill, and they're going to you know, get together and decide to kill him on the Sabbath. Oh, it's just the, the irony is rich. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and was restored to normal like the other. 
But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him and how they might destroy him. You know, not like, well, let's get together and figure out what he means. Let's figure it. Let's search the scripture. Let's see what he means. This man obviously has power. We just saw him heal a man's withered hand right in front of our eyes. Uh, you know, maybe we should think this through. Nope. Let's kill him. Let's get it over with. And we can be like that. It's tempting to us as well. You know, uh, when they uh, carpet bomb, I think I put in my notes a blanket bomb. <laughs> it's not blanket bombing, it's carpet bombing. I guess it's the same thing. But, you know, as you just uh, fly over a region and just drop bombs everywhere to destroy the enemy, um, we can do that with our problems rather than think them through. It takes, because it's stuff that we don't like to do, it takes patience, it takes prayer, it takes study, it takes more patience as we're waiting for God's answers and solutions. All right, last one. They assume others are just like them. In 2762, you can go there to 2762 right near the end. And why do they... Well, no, let's read it and you'll see. Why do they think everybody's like them? I'm sure the elites in our world think everybody's like them. Yeah, it dawned on me the other day after I saw our grocery bill that the people who are making the decisions that make groceries so expensive for everybody, do not go buy groceries. That was a revelation to me. Yeah, if, our, if the people who made laws had to actually be poor enough, I say reasonably poor enough, that they had to budget their actual groceries, they'd say, well, you know, this is expensive. <laughs> I should do something about this that's right. But they, you know, they're so far above it that they don't know. Uh, and in this case, look at 2762. The next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'm going to rise again. That's lovely how they call him a deceiver, even after he's dead. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So why do I say they're like, they, they assume others are like them? They assume that the disciples are deceivers. That the disciples are going to underhandedly, criminally in fact, create a resurrection that isn't real. And that's what they would do. They have no concept about reality. And yet, still, we as believers can be lost when it comes to reality. We can be deceived as anybody. That's why we're warned of it. We're warned of it over and over. Don't be deceived. They think that the others are just like him. 
But you see, you can't stop it. They tried to stop the resurrection. You can't stop the resurrection. You can't stop the coming kingdom. You know what else you can't stop? You cannot stop the fact that you're going to be judged by the king of kings for the deeds you've done in the body. 2 Corinthians 5.10. I've mentioned it several times in our study here of this paragraph. Because he is a judge. And he's going to, we're not going to lose our salvation, but he's going to judge us for the deeds that we've done in the body. Whether they're good or bad. Just like the fruit. The fruit is either good or bad. There's no middle ground when he speaks of fruit. We'll see that tomorrow. Now, we can't stop that judgment day for us. But we can be prepared for it by repenting in the things that we need to repent. Again, John warns the Pharisees and Sadducees that they must bear good fruit worthy of repentance or that generation will be removed and not experience the kingdom of heaven. We can't lose our place in the kingdom of heaven. But we sure can lose the experience of it in this life. And then, you know, whatever the judgment is, he doesn't give us details, but... I know for each of us, for every believer, we don't want to be judged for bad fruit when we're there. That we want to stand in front of him and have him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the grace and mercy that comes from the truth. We ask, Father, that you guide and direct us in what you have provided by means of your truth that we see the areas in our lives, reveal them to us, Father. We know that you can and will reveal in our lives the areas that we need to repent in as we continue to grow in grace and knowledge. May we seek your will through your word, through prayer, and through application by your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.